Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the prospects for Biden's foreign policy looking forward, which seems to be mostly looking backward to an era of American overconfidence and self-ascribed exceptionalism that may never have been warranted, the fact of which becomes clearer with every passing year, something people living outside the U.S. have actually known for decades. Before we get started on that, though, a quick reminder that we are still in our break glass in case of emergency financial situation. I'm going to give more of an update at the end. Just remember these three things and take action where you can. Number one, memberships are key to sustainability of the show. We've gotten a lot of new signups, which is great, and I thank everyone who's done that, but we still have a little ways to go. So if you can become a member or want to gift a membership, please do. We have a new merch store, and most excitingly, we've launched our Referomatic that you can use to earn Best of Left rewards just for sharing the show and helping to grow the audience. Links and details for all of that are in the show notes. And now, on to the show. Clips today are from Intercepted with Jeremy Scahill, What Next, an episode of Check Your Blind Spot, The Majority Report, and Democracy Now! Kelly, on that front, give us an assessment of the kind of foreign policy ideology that Joe Biden represents. Well, I don't really know what kind of foreign policy or ideology that Joe Biden represents other than what I would say is the internationalist approach of the last 70 years, you know, forward projecting military global primacy, U.S. global primacy and hegemony in the world in order to, quote, lead the liberal international order to protect, to promote democracy. But What I see in Joe Biden is that, you know, as a senator, he has made some good judgment, uh, for example, on Afghanistan in 2009. He did not want to surge tens of thousands of new troops into the country. He was overruled. Uh, Most of the Obama inner circle had been for the surge. It was a big thing in this city at that time to do some sort of counterinsurgency to prove that we could rebuild that nation. Joe Biden was against that. You are absolutely correct that Biden was agitating against what ended up being this pretty dramatic surge of troops in Afghanistan that brought him derision from the likes of Stanley McChrystal, who was the person Obama chose to run the Afghan surge and war at the time. But Biden's counterproposal was pretty similar to what Trump now is saying in Afghanistan. Let's keep CIA and special operations forces on standby to do targeted strikes and to sort of lean more in the direction of surgical covert operations rather than large-scale troop deployments. That's right. And I I get the sense that Biden, as opposed to having his own ideology that he is sort of acting from, he listens to people around him. And I feel like he's listening quite a bit to military voices. And if you listen to anybody, particularly uh, David Petraeus, for example, he was on an event recently talking about how leaving a force of 2,000 to 5,000 troops in Afghanistan uh, would be quite appropriate and that we would be maintaining a footprint and in that country to A, you know, counter any terrorist flame ups, 
or to help continue this sort of institution building and not let our allies down. And I feel like that is the overriding approach from the military, that they are insisting that we have some sort of footprint there. And you're hearing it echoed now within his small uh, coterie of transition team members and nominees. There are much smarter people here in this town than I who will tell you that having that force there is going to do nothing in terms of actually beating back all of the terrorist gains, but it will continue the agitation of the Taliban and the agitation of some of the other terrorist groups that are still operating there. And so this whole idea to maintain a footprint is, is really just the military not being willing to give up and admit quote unquote defeat in this war, but it still maintains a huge forward operating presence because you have support and contractors, which would still be in the country And it would still be stretching ourselves too thin uh, with blood and treasure and keeping these deployments going as they have been for the last 20 years. What I think one of the most remarkable aspects of the Trump era is just the sameness of U.S. policy when it comes to foreign entanglements, wars, militarism. I don't think you can make a credible case that Donald Trump is somehow wildly outside the scope of normal imperial business under both Democrats and Republicans. When you look at his scorched earth policies in Syria, when you look at his wielding of economic sanctions, when you look at his kill them all strategy in Afghanistan, as well as his support uh, for Saudi Arabia in Yemen. And in fact, Trump himself authorized greenlit ground operations in Yemen. He's dramatically expanded drone strikes and covert operations in Somalia, but that was kicked off by the Obama-Biden administration. I I think when you strip away the rhetoric, you'd be hard-pressed to make a case that when it comes to so-called national security policy, Donald Trump was some radical outlier in the scope, particularly the post-9-11 scope of U.S. national security policy. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, and I don't mean to sugarcoat Trump's record, you know, I mean, you're absolutely correct. And I think one of the, the least reported elements of his national security policy has been the not only continuing of the drone war, but accelerating it in Somalia. So you're correct. It's not like he went in like the bull in the china shop that they all talk about. I mean, we all, we have the same policies pretty much in Syria, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, in Libya, even Iraq. You know, policy directives have changed. People have gone in and out. But really, you know, it remains the same. I think what they just want is one of them, one of the uh, elite establishment creatures that they are used to that make them feel good about themselves, good about our placement in the world. Everything's okay. Get the weirdo out of the the White House, and then we can go on and restore, you know, business as usual. As Secretary of State, I nominate Tony Blinken. He's one of the better prepared for this job. No one's better prepared, in my view. 
Anthony Blinken, Tony Blinken, is the nominee for Secretary of State. He is a very well-known interventionist. He backed the regime change war in Libya. He wanted more military action in Syria. Blinken now sort of is trying to step away from the, the Saudi genocidal war in Yemen, but he was a crucial key player during the Obama administration in advocating for increased sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia. In fact, it was Blinken who went to Riyadh in 2015 as a representative of the Obama administration to announce that the U.S. was expediting its weapons deliveries to Saudi Arabia. And he actually said in a press conference that the Saudis were, quote, sending a strong message with their war in Yemen. Kelly, pick it up from there on Tony Blinken. He's been behind every bad foreign policy decision in the Obama administration, whether it be Libya, Syria, Yemen, staying in Afghanistan. And, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he represents this elite Washington establishment, this sort of uh, Washington creature who is very well versed in international relations and political science. He went to Ivy League schools. Um, he's worked with Biden since his senatorial days. He went right from uh, getting his PhD and right into Washington. And so he represents the status quo. And what is that status quo? We will continue to see uh, the Pentagon budgets uh, at a certain level. Uh, we will continue to be in Afghanistan. I have seen nothing from Anthony Blinken about his position in Afghanistan being anything other than mirroring what Biden has said. And he has also talked pretty tough about China. And it doesn't give me a lot of confidence that he is going to be bringing in any new fresh thinking to the job. Peter's views about American leadership aren't exactly popular in some Washington political circles. That's because, for years, most American diplomats have seen themselves as essential players on the world stage. Peter does think the U.S. can be helpful abroad, but that argument that if America dialed back its dominance, chaos would ensue, Peter's not buying it. I I'm not against the United States' involvement and partnership uh, or solidarity at all. What I am against is the notion that we believe that we have some unique right and ability to, as you said, and as Biden said, sit at the head of the table. There may be moments when we sit at the head of the table, but um, I think that the problem with this metaphor of sitting at the head of the table is it does not acknowledge that we have the capacity to do, to not only to do good, but to do enormous harm. Um, and that when we essentially give ourselves the right to set the rules ourselves, we don't take sufficient account of the fact that we are not even often abiding by those rules. Um, we and no other country left the Paris Climate Agreement. We and no other signatory to the Iran nuclear deal left the Iran nuclear deal. We and in the middle of a pandemic and no other country left the World Health Organization. We violated, we in invaded Iraq in clear violation of international law. We have basically made the World Trade Organization dysfunctional because we have vetoed 
all appointments to its main panel. We have our record of not ratifying international treaties on things like preservation of the oceans, the rights of women, children, and the disabled, the, the, the regulation of arms sales, the regulation of the cluster bombs, nuclear nonproliferation, uh, in war, war crimes and genocide is unparalleled among any country in the world. And I think the American exceptionalist narrative, which simply takes American innocence as a given so that when we do things that are wrong, it's simply a mistake. It's out of character. But when other countries uh, do things that, that violate international law, that's a reflection of who they really are. I just think a lot of people in the world don't buy that. Well, I, I want to talk about when you began to see this this way, because my understanding is that you haven't always had this perspective. What was the turning point for you looking back? I think that um, I, like some others of my age, my generation, which is kind of Generation X, which is the generation of, of some of Biden's top foreign policy advisors, I think we're very influenced by the events of the 1990s, America's victory in the Cold War, the intervention in the, in the, the Gulf War in 1991, that America won, the, the debates over America's interventions in Bosnia in 1995 and Kosovo in 1999, where after a lot of fear that these might end up like Vietnam, they actually ended up being interventions that at least appeared at the time as if we had done something good by stopping ethnic cleansing. I think this set of experiences, the 90s was a period of expanding democracy, a period where America raised its budget deficit, I think led to an excessive faith on my behalf in both American power and American virtue in, in, in terms of the way we practiced foreign policy overseas. You note that people that are slightly older than you have a different perspective because, of course, they were around for the Vietnam War. And so when your generation came in, there was a little bit of a clash. Yes. One of the things I, I noticed, and I, I wrote about this a little bit in um, a book I wrote called The Icarus Syndrome, was that many of the people who were warning about the potential for a Vietnam-style disaster in the 1990s were people who had lived through the Vietnam War. And I think for those of us who were younger, when the Gulf War and, and Bosnia and then Kosovo did not turn into Vietnam-style quagmires, I think it led us wrongly to kind of disregard Vietnam as a important analogy, an important warning for American foreign policy. So that when uh, this sense of self-confidence in American power was supercharged by the by 9-11, the Vietnam analogy by that point didn't have nearly as much salience in the debate as it should have. And then, of course, we ended up going into Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. You know, one of the things that I spent... Uh, quite a few years trying to grapple with after uh, the Iraq war, which the magazine I edited, The New Republic, supported, was um, what were the uh, intellectual assumptions that led me to this kind of hubristic view that the United States could, outside of the framework of international law, um, uh, overthrow a government and then reconstitute its society in a way that made things better. Part of what makes Peter feel so strongly about this is that he's watched as even humanitarian interventions have terrible outcomes. It's important to remember that the Iraq War was partly justified 
as a humanitarian effort to to remove a, a horrific dictator. Libya, which maybe will go down as the kind of the end of the era of American humanitarian intervention, was justified that way. Muammar Gaddafi, the leader who ruled Libya for four decades by crushing the opposition, could himself be crushed by a popular uprising. The U.S. calls it a reign of violence by Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and his cohorts, and it's setting in motion a range of options to stop it. Nothing is off the table. When he was asked about his worst mistake as president back in 2016, Barack Obama's immediate answer was the U.S. intervention in Libya. Despite his best intentions, Obama acknowledged that after killing Muammar Gaddafi, there simply wasn't a good enough plan. In Libya, when the Arab Spring broke out, you saw a rebellion against the long-serving dictator Muammar Gaddafi. And Gaddafi responded to that by um, uh, cracking down very brutally against the rebels, and he appeared on the verge of an even more brutal crackdown. And there was some interest among America's European allies in at least using air power to stop him from being able to do that. And the Barack Obama reluctantly agreed to join with uh, Britain and France and other NATO allies to do that. And it then turned, ultimately, what that led to was the overthrow of Gaddafi. But Gaddafi was not replaced by a kind of uh, a government that could represent all of the Libyan people and bring a functional liberal democratic government. What ultimately happened was the country fractured into into different factions who kept fighting with one another. And the two factions were supported by different groups. And so ultimately what Libyans got instead of a brutal dictatorship was civil war and a failed state. And that led Obama um, and others to question whether we had done the right thing by intervening militarily. Yeah. When the United States was considering an intervention, I wonder what that conversation was in Washington. I think there were folks who felt that it would be a stain on America's conscience if we simply stood by and let Gaddafi carry out what looked like there could be mass killings. And I totally understand that that impulse. Um, I think it comes from a genuinely good place. And yet, I think one of the really hard lessons, painful lessons that I think um, people have learned is that states can be fragile and and the alternative to a brutal dictator is not necessarily an inclusive liberal democratic government. Oftentimes, what dictators leave in their wake, especially if they're toppled militarily, is state collapse, um, uh, especially if the United States is not willing to invest and its ally and its partners invest massively in a project of nation building, as we were not willing to do in Libya. So it's hard to look at Libya today, which remains a failed state in a, in a state of civil war with many outside actors preying upon it and say that Libya is better off because the U.S. intervened. And we're talking about Joe Biden and, and his team and, and what they might mean for U.S. intervention and this idea of American exceptionalism. And I think it's important when we talk about a circumstance like Libya, these characters have been around for a long time. Like the incoming Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, 
he was there for that decision. And as I recall, he and Joe Biden disagreed about what to do. Yes. Interestingly, um, Blinken was more interventionist on Libya than Biden was. Um, you know, they remain very close, but their instincts have been a little bit different. Again, I think Blinken himself is probably chastened by that experience. But um, I think that my larger concern about Biden and his this team has to do with whether they are um, creating a set of expectations around what a kind of multilateral U.S. foreign policy can do that are unrealistic given the power dynamics that actually exist. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I see this incoming team of Joe Biden's having some of the same questions and ideas that you do. Like, I, I was looking at something that Blinken said when he talked about Syria and how he explicitly says, you know, we sought to avoid another Iraq by not doing too much, but we made the opposite error of doing too little in Syria. And I wondered what you thought about that, because it's another circumstance where, of course, you could go in with the best of intentions, but you're right. Like nation building is a lot of work and we haven't really shown that we're great at sticking around and doing it once the military side of things are over. So I wonder looking at, for instance, Syria and Blinken's perspective on that, do you think he's toying with some of the same ideas that you are of American exceptionalism and, and how we should live that in the world or not? I am very sympathetic to the fact that given how horrific the, Af the situation in Syria has been, that, that Tony Blinken feels agonized about it. I think he should feel agonized about it. I think that's a, you know, that's a credit to him. We want people who, who, who feel agonized when there's enormous human suffering. But it does not, can, I am not convinced of the argument that, um, that things would have turned out better had the U.S. aggressively intervened more aggressively. And I think given this set of experiences that we've seen from Iraq to Libya to Afghanistan, I think the onus has to be now on people who want the United States to intervene aggressively in regime change operations to be able to prove convincingly that there's a very strong likelihood of a positive outcome, given that we have seen so many negative outcomes over the last two decades. once again to play America's favorite political game show. Check your blind spot. That's right. It's Check Your Blind Spot brought to you and powered by our sponsor, the Ground News app, the first ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. The Ground News app features the blind spot, which highlights news stories that just aren't being covered by one end of the political spectrum or the other. So I use the blind spot to quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is 
our reigning champion, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am going to be telling you about news stories, and you're going to tell me which side of the political spectrum is blind to them. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, let's dive right in to round one. In whose political blind spot is this story? A Michigan lawmaker threatens Trumpers, she refers to them as, and tells them to, quote, walk lightly, we ain't playing with you, and uses the phrase, make them pay. And the Republicans in the state legislature stripped her of her committee positions in response to this. Yeah, so it's a little tricky because I did hear about this story, but... Um the headline was more about what the Republicans did and less about what she said. And so I'm going to guess that the angle of what she said uh, that really got Republicans worked up is in the left's blind spot. Correct. That is correct. And, And as we know, headlines are massively important. And so this is a good example of this. Only a handful of outlets, left, right, or center, mentioned that her video was in response to several lynching threats she'd received on her voicemail right. line. <laughs> Which was the headline I saw. And and it, it talked about her response. But yeah, she's she was threatened with lynching. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, yeah, this is a good example that... On the right, they focused on what she said, and they mentioned that she claimed to have received messages she didn't, you know, they didn't just say outright that she actually did, even though tapes had been played. Mm -hmm. But the headline, of course, was focused on what she said, whereas on the left, the reverse happened. Excellent. Well done. Let's get ready for round two. In whose political blind spot is this story? The Manhattan DA, according to reports, has intensified their investigation of Trump. (laughs) I think this is in the right blind spot. Oh, good. Yeah, that that one is pretty clear cut. To be honest, the alternate story I was considering was that Biden had won the election. And that the Electoral College is about to vote. That is a real story that's being published. The right wing isn't aware of that (laughs) at all. Excellent. Two for two. Very cut and dry. Let's move on to round three. In whose political blind spot is this story? A former bin Laden spokesman has been released from U.S. prison and has returned to the U.K. due to an early mercy release granted because of his obesity and asthma in light of the COVID-19 pandemic? Hmm. I'm going to say the right is a little worked up about this. So it's in the left's blind spot? That is correct. And and to be honest, we're talking about the story because it came with the phrase of the day by a mile. So here's here's the headline from uh, The Telegraph. Former bin Laden spokesman labeled and quote, obese busted flush <laughs> who poses no threat to the UK. That's that's a legal term. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had to look this up. I had no idea. Like I, I thought it was a 
cool Britishism or mm-hmm. something because it went back to the UK. And so right. they're talking about it. So, no, I, I had to look it up. The first definition, poker players may be familiar with it. It's literally a hand in poker consisting of four cards of the same suit and one that is different, i.e. one card short of a flush. Okay. And the second definition is a person, organization, or thing that at one time held great potential or influence, but that ultimately ended up in failure. (laughs) Okay. So they referred to this dude as an obese, busted flush. Just creative. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Writing points. (laughs) And so, yeah, so the, the UK is not super thrilled because he was granted asylum in the UK back in the 90s. And so when he was released from prison in the U.S., he was allowed to go back there. And, like, now he's just there. Right. And uh, and so they're writing about it quite a bit. Uh-huh. I would bet. Well, good job. That was three for three. Thank you. Oh. I, I do love our fans. <laughs> Once again, winner and still champion, Amanda from Boston. Thank you for playing. Thank you for having me. That wraps it up for today. It's important to mention that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone and definitely not that of the staunchly unopinionated ground news. If you'd like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features and let them know we sent you, go to ground.news slash best. As always, whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to check your blind spot. President-elect Joe Biden is assembling his national security team. On Monday night, reports emerged that he had selected former U.S. Central Command Chief General Lloyd Austin as his defense secretary. Austin, who retired from the Pentagon in 2016, would need a waiver from Congress to serve in this civilian post because he's not been separated from the military for seven years. That's required by U.S. law. In fact, it's exactly what Trump did when he appointed General James Mattis, and it raises serious questions about the historical civilian oversight of the Pentagon. But also, Austin is yet another potential nominee who has cashed in on his military tenure in retirement and embodies the revolving door between government and for-profit war corporations. He currently sits on the board of the giant defense firm Raytheon. He's also a D.C. partner in a capital investment firm, that invests in defense contractors. But General Austin is hardly the only example of these characters populating the incoming Biden administration and the outgoing Trump administration. In fact, Biden's national security team, much like Trump's, is shaping up to be a corporate profiteer-filled venture that highlights some of the worst special interest facets of how legalized influence peddling is done in Washington, D.C., And Republicans and government watchdogs alike are calling for answers. Senator Cornyn tweeting, I want to see what foreign countries, if any, they've worked for. And the Project on Government Oversight's Mandy Smithberger saying, we want to make sure that they're not beholden to anyone else and that any decisions they would make would be beyond reproach. Biden's nominees include people who are notorious hawks, people who were central to the genocidal war in Yemen, the sales of weapons to Saudi Arabia, the regime change war in Libya, the war in Syria, the assassination and drone programs, the use of economic sanctions as a deadly weapon. It is, in short, shaping up to be a kettle of hawks. 
Biden is still in the midst of compiling his cabinet, but on national security, it's looking a lot like a replay of the Obama-Biden militarist coterie. There are undoubtedly foreign policy areas where the Biden administration will correct the egregious actions of Trump, particularly in the case of the Iran nuclear deal. But there are also areas where Biden could prove more hawkish than Trump, particularly on North Korea, Afghanistan, and the question of troop deployments. In all the Beltway scuttlebutt around Biden's cabinet, there is no mention of open critics of U.S. war-making being considered for any key national security positions. That's not an oversight. That's how the business of protecting the militarized myth of American exceptionalism is performed by the establishment Democratic Party. Joining me now is Kelly Vlahos, the executive editor of the anti-war publication, The American Conservative. She's also a senior advisor to the newly formed Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That's a new transpartisan think tank created by anti-war progressives, libertarians, and other advocates of military restraint. Kelly Vlahos, thank you so much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thank you, Jeremy. What is the big picture in your assessment of Joe Biden's victory in the November election? I find it very interesting and somewhat disappointing in many respects because I feel like the main takeaway from all of the remarks made in public by Biden's transition team and the foreign policy and national security picks he's made so far is oriented around this idea that the adults are back in the room. While this team has unmatched experience and accomplishments, they also reflect the idea that we cannot meet these challenges with old thinking and unchanged habits. We're hearing a lot about outreach to partners and allies overseas. We're getting our internationalist order back in check. And we are now um, going to be leading the world the way we were supposed to do before Trump came along and cracked everything up. We're following breaking news. President-elect Joe Biden declaring, and I'm quoting now, America is back as he formally introduced the key cabinet picks. He said the team shows the country is ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. Experience and leadership, fresh thinking and perspective, and an unrelenting belief in the promise of America. I've long said that America leads not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And I'm proud to put forward this incredible team. To me, that just says we're going back to the status quo. Uh, We're talking about at least 40 years, if not more, of failed policies, endless wars, and overseas global primacy. Some of these things that Trump had actually tried to address, believe it or not, now that he has been sort of exposed as being little more than a disruptor and nothing else, there seems to be this blobby return to quote unquote normalcy. And you realize, wow, um, we are probably going to go back another four years or more uh, to the way it was in Washington. It's also an attempt to bring back normalcy to what has been nothing but a clown show at 1600 Black Lives Matter Plaza. Now, in case you forgot what normal sounds like, here it is. America at its best still has a greater ability than any other country on earth to bring others together to meet the challenges of our time. I know, Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect, that you've selected us not to serve you, but to serve on behalf of the American people. On this day, I'm thinking about the American people. 
my fellow career diplomats and public servants around the world, I want to say to you, America is back. America's back. We're at the head of the table once again. I've spoken with over 20 world leaders. Set aside whatever anyone wants to allege about Trump's motivations in the 11th hour, we need to get out of Afghanistan and we need to do it as quickly as possible. Like, I, I think Trump is right about that, even if I think the guy is a totally insincere charlatan in so many ways. But I think it's a, a useful exercise to sort of examine how the bipartisan war party on Capitol Hill has responded to these inadvertently anti-interventionist moments of Trump, whether it's overtures toward North Korea or in the case of Afghanistan saying, let's get out. The Democrats simultaneously would tell the country that Donald Trump is the most dangerous person ever to hold that office. And then at the same time, they would vote for record-shattering military expenditures and military budgets. They would vote for sweeping surveillance powers. And they're sort of apoplectic right now at the thought that we might actually pull troops out of Afghanistan. Wrestle, Kelly, for a bit with that dynamic, that you have Trump, who is kind of, you know— insincere liar charlatan, but occasionally seems to want to do what ultimately people like you and I would think is the right thing to get out of U.S. wars. Yeah, I think wrestle with it is like the perfect uh, description of what I personally have been doing in the last four years, because I had worked um, most of that time as an editor at the American Conservative, which was founded in 2002 in opposition to the Iraq war policy. So we had been four square against these endless wars to begin with. So when President Trump or then candidate Trump had come out and said, listen, Iraq was a failure. We need to get out of these protracted occupations and interventions in the Middle East. It's not doing anything for our country. The war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake. All right. Now, you can take it any way you want. And, and when he you. won, we continued to champion any moves he made to get out of Afghanistan, um, to get out of Syria, uh, to, you know, basically rein in some of the impulses by more hawkish members of his team and in Congress. But then he did a lot of things that, you know, we would not agree with, like getting out of the Iranian nuclear deal, as well as leaving a force in, in Syria to ostensibly protect oil, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. And so it was a mixed bag. So yeah, wrestling with Trump, as well as his behavior, as well as his approach, his lack of governance, you know, it was pretty tough for non-interventionists. When you talk about Democrats, though, the fact that they could not get off their butts to get us out of Afghanistan for four years, to actually reset that policy, to get behind the uh, negotiations in a way that would have been helpful. And then when Trump finally makes a stand to say, I want to reduce troops there, they partner with the Republican hawks to try to press legislation that would hold back funds to actually withdraw. So you have these Democrats who supposedly are against endless wars or supposedly for the troops would penalize the administration for trying to get out of war. I do want to caveat that by saying there were some true attempts to get out of the war in Yemen. Both the House and the Senate passed votes that would end our assistance to Saudi Arabia in that war. And that is highly commendable. 
The president vetoed it, another thing that we as conservative non-interventionists were against. So there were some good things that, that Congress did, but I entirely agree with you that Democrats, I guess in their spite of Trump, have actually kept us from getting out of that war in Afghanistan when the majority of Americans say in polling after polling that they want out. The senior advisors around Biden recognize that the so-called unipolar moment that the United States enjoyed at the end of the 1990s was just that. It's a moment and it's past. And actually, the Trump administration has recognized the same thing in its national security strategy. The problem is that, um, you know, this could lead you in broadly one or two directions. You can say, OK, the United States, you know, didn't even play its incredibly favorably hand well in the most propitious circumstances imaginable. Why should we think it's going to get better going forward? Let's recalculate what threats we face, what our interests are, and judiciously pull back our military force around the world. That's basically what I'm for. But what the Trump administration, uh, the Pentagon in particular, has done is say, oh, this is a problem. And now we need to get tougher Now that we face a a world with uh, great power competitors, near peer competitors, Russia and China, uh, we didn't expect them to rise. And now they're, you know, doing bad things. And so now we've got to focus on them, even as we continue to not be able to wind down our own wars in the Middle East uh, and elsewhere. And, you know, I think that that there's actually mainstream bipartisan agreement on that score. And that's troubling. And so I worry that some of the senior people around Biden uh, basically are going to continue this um, notion of great power competition to orient the United States, which can provide an argument for getting out of the Middle East uh, in order to focus on China in particular. Uh, but I don't I think that's an attempt to cling to as much military dominance as possible in conditions that have obviously changed internationally and domestically. I don't think that would be sufficient to bring about the change that we need. That, that's basically your the first point uh, of five that you make in the uh, foreign policy piece, which is the Biden administration should not pursue global military dominance. Um, and where I mean, I don't know if that's if. So let's let's move on to, to point two, because I, I want to maybe circle back into that, because the question of China and, and, and relative like, you know, what global military dominance means in an era where China is um, at least perceived to be ascendant. Um, you say the second thing is the Biden administration must deliver on its promise to end uh, the forever wars. You touched on that. That's Afghanistan. What, where else do we need to pull back? I mean, Afghanistan. We have now, uh, you know, it's interesting. Trump tried to take off the table, uh, I guess, half our forces there, which would be about 2,500, if I'm not mistaken. And there was, you know, broad pushback on this, in part because it's Trump or ostensibly because it was Trump, but maybe because of other reasons. Um, 
What, where else do we need to disengage and, and what does that disengagement look like? I mean, do we just leave Afghanistan? What does that say to our NATO allies? Although we'll get to NATO is another question as well. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got uh, a forever war framework via the war on terror that spans across a good portion of the globe, the greater Middle East, North Africa, Afghanistan included in there. The U.S. has ground troops, not just in, in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq, still, Syria, uh, and Somalia. And I think the Biden administration, uh, not just to secure our interests and protect our people, uh, but also to restore a modicum of credibility with the American people should bring those conflicts to a close in a clear way over the course of its four years. It really would not be a good thing if the next candidate can run saying, you know, Joe Biden is prosecuted the forever war still, you know, and there's just overwhelming support uh, about three quarters of the American public, which doesn't agree on very much, agrees that U.S. troops should come home from Afghanistan and Iraq. That's just an overwhelming number. So I think to restore some uh, health to our own democracy, and by the way, not create the sense of keep feeding the sense of existential fear that, you know, we have enemies out there that want to kill us, and that's why we've got to kill them. This is incredibly important to bring those conflicts uh, to a close, and it should be done responsibly. But in the case of uh, Afghanistan, the United States has made an agreement uh, with the Taliban, uh, and U.S. troops are supposed to fully come home at the end of April. Uh, and uh, I actually think that if Trump had been able to um, bring U.S. troops fully home from Afghanistan. It would have uh, done Biden a favor and uh, avoided uh, Biden having to make now some some difficult decisions. But, you know, it, it's just um, unimaginable to me how uh, the United States now with a very small capacity is fundamentally going to change the balance of power on the ground in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, we, we just cannot expect that we're going to lose a war, fight a war for 20 years, not be successful in achieving our grandiose goals and then refuse to leave uh, until conditions are ideal on the ground. They're not going to be ideal. You know, it was a it was the right thing to end the war in Vietnam. It did lead to the North's uh, takeover of Vietnam. Uh, but, you know. We have to be able to live with the consequences and get what we need. And what we need is to make sure that Afghanistan does not become a haven from which the United States is targeted by terrorists. And that's something, you know, we should evaluate just as we evaluate threats from terrorism elsewhere uh, without continuing to be a participant in the violence in Afghanistan. Well, 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 I mean, I've I've forgotten now. Like, what was ostensibly our mission in Afghanistan? I mean, I, I mean, I remember, you know, when uh, bin Laden was in Tora Bora and we were surrounded him and then let him go, essentially, because we had to put uh, people into Iraq. But what was the and, and I remember there was a brief moment where people were talking about women's rights in Afghanistan and, um, you know, putting in a, uh, a democratically elected uh, government there that is going to be in charge of not just uh, Kabul, but everywhere but we didn't put any resources into that country beyond our military it seems to me like 
We didn't, I don't remember the big project to build all the roads or build schools or schools or the, you know, I think at one point we were painting them. Um, but, uh, I don't like that ended, it seems to me 15 years ago. And we've just been there maybe keeping the Taliban from taking over a certain part of the country at any given point. I mean, is that basically what the mission has been? And that doesn't seem to be doing, like you say, I guess it doesn't seem to be doing anything. Well, the uh, release of the Afghanistan papers last year revealed uh, just how skeptical most uh, senior officials and military leaders have been that the United States could achieve its objective in Afghanistan almost from the beginning. I mean, the initial objective is actually something I support. Look, the United States was attacked on 9-11. The enemy was al-Qaeda. You know, the United States then set out to decimate al-Qaeda and also punish the Taliban government for harboring al-Qaeda. That makes sense. That goal was quickly achieved. Unfortunately, we did not get the leader of al-Qaeda, bin Laden. But nevertheless, al-Qaeda was hurt badly. It was quickly achieved. And so instead of saying, okay, you know, if we don't pull back now, we'll never have a coherent reason to pull back. We continued and expanded the mission to nation building, making Afghanistan, you know, exactly who believed that we were going to turn Afghanistan into a liberal democracy is an interesting question. And when those beliefs wax and waned, but we've actually, you know, made considerable efforts. It's not exactly for, for want of trying. The Obama administration implemented a, a major surge of troops in Afghanistan and caught bin Laden. So there was another off ramp to say, hey, um, we have achieved our mission. If we don't stop this now, when is it going to end? But unfortunately, that off ramp was not taken. And so here we are with a war that basically nobody can defend. I mean, the Taliban keeps gaining ground. Um, nobody is seriously proposing in Washington to come up with a creative you know, strategy backed by significant new resources to really change the equation. We're afraid to leave. if you think President Trump's term has been kind of an experiment here, because while Trump involved himself abroad a bit, like in North Korea, in the Middle East, the last four years, the U.S. has withdrawn from the international stage. What have, What's happened when we did that? Well, I don't think it's quite right to say the United States has withdrawn. I would say the United States has wielded its power in different ways. The United States has been extremely unilateral, levying sanctions on all kinds of countries, even countries that are traditionally our allies. We have withdrawn from all, you know, we were not a great, great about signing up for international agreements already, but we've, we've withdrawn now from a kind of unprecedented number of them. So I, I think what's, what we've seen with Trump is not, as I think it's sometimes described, isolationism, but unilateralism, essentially the notion that American power should be bounded by no authority, legal or moral, beyond what America sees as is it in its own narrow self-interest. And I think that um, that has really eroded whatever was left of the belief in much of the world that the United States 
was pursuing kind of common good in the world. It sounds like a more extreme version of what was already happening. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it, it is important to remember that, again, if you look at George W. Bush's administration, the Bush administration not only would not enter the International Criminal Court, which was designed to create an opportunity to prosecute war crimes and genocide because of the fear that we might one day be prosecuted, Um, but it basically gave the United States the right to virtually take military action to ensure that the International Criminal Court never brought proceedings against the United States. And I just think we should stop there for a moment and think about that. So basically, the position of the United States is, by definition, our behavior should never be a subject to the to kind of international moral standards of, of human rights behavior. That's what Trump has done is, has essentially taken that logic and taken it even further. Um, but that logic has a deep history in American foreign policy. He did not invent it. Um, and, uh, and I think it's part of the reason that other countries look at the United States and say, on what moral authority do you claim to have to exercise the right of moral leadership to the world? I can understand why your argument may be hard for some people to accept, because part of it means accepting a little bit that America's maybe on the downslope. But then there's also this issue we're talking about now, which is the fact that Americans have behaved badly abroad, and everyone seems to know it, and there's been no accountability But it seems to me that to get people to accept the argument you're making, that America should have a little bit of a humbler role abroad, the first thing we have to do is convince Americans of that second part, of the fact that we didn't do such a great job. And sometimes it's obvious with Iraq and Afghanistan, and then sometimes I think it's not. I, I would say, first of all, that it's interesting that if you look at polling, uh, pretty consistently, Poland does not suggest that Americans want to withdraw from the world They do and have, have America have no role, but neither do they want America to be the single dominant force. Mostly what they want, uh, even if it sounds kind of soft and mushy, is cooperation. They want America to be one country cooperating with other countries. So they're actually, in public opinion, there's a surprising amount of support for this and surprisingly little support for the notion of America as the single dominant power, which is often something which is popular in, in foreign policy circles. The second point I would make is that there is often a tendency in foreign policy discourse to associate America, the kind of America's global footprint, particularly its global military footprint. You know, who has more power in Syria or in the Caucasus, Russia or the United States, to associate that with the well-being of ordinary Americans. And I think if there's one one thing we can take away from from the Trump experience and the fact that he was elected, um, was that many Americans don't buy that necessarily, and and they're right not to buy it. It is not necessarily the case that America, having more influence in more countries around the world and having a larger military footprint in those countries, necessarily benefits ordinary Americans. In some ways, it actually detracts from our ability to take care of things here at home. And one of the things that worries me about the Biden folks is that I see in their writing, you know, not a willingness to really look seriously at cutting the defense budget, but instead an effort to kind of talk about beefing up deterrence vis-a-vis China so we can compete with China 
in places like the South China Sea. And I think for an ordinary American who's just gone through the pandemic, surely the the priority should not be uh, um, the balance of military power in the South China Sea, but it should be whether the United States can build a welfare state that can literally keep our people alive. So I worry that the balance there is out of whack. You see Americans asking themselves, what is in it for me? What is in it for me in American global power? How is it actually benefiting me? And and a kind of skepticism of the easy equation that I think you often find that um, American, ordinary Americans are better off when the United States has a larger footprint around the world. It may well be that um, if America were to retract some of its military influence and power around the world and redeploy some of those resources and energy towards trying to build a more functional society at home, that actually Americans at home would benefit from that. We've just heard clips today, starting with Intercepted, discussing the replay of the Obama-Biden foreign policy cabinet. What Next talked with Peter Beinart about the argument for the U.S. taking a step back from the presumed position of leader of the world. We heard our latest episode of Check Your Blind Spot. Intercepted discussed the cross-partisan alliance of anti-interventionists who oppose the forever wars. The Majority Report discussed how and why we're stuck in Afghanistan, even though no one can make an argument for why we need to be there. And what next finished their talk with Peter Beinart explaining why people have stopped believing that the U.S. having international dominance is actually beneficial to their lives. That's what everyone heard, but members also got a bonus clip from Democracy Now! discussing why the assassination of a top Iranian nuclear scientist could tie Biden's hands in future talks. For non-members, that bonus clip is linked in the show notes and is part of today's transcript, so you can still find it if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. So every request is granted, no questions asked. We have a couple of voiced mails for you today discussing the connection between the Confederacy of the Southern United States and its origin story in Scotland. The first one we're going to hear is referencing that episode and the Jacobite uprising in Scotland of the 1700s. I think that's all the context you need. Hi, this is Kara. This is my first email. It's short and nothing important to say. Just wanted to cry because I love the show Outlander. If you don't know it, basically it's a fictional time travel story based on some books, where a 1920s woman is accidentally sent back in time to the exact moment in time this episode talks about, where she falls in love with a Jacobite soldier. The show is a mix of sci-fi and some history. They show that war, then them eventually coming to America before the government was established. I admit I definitely didn't know the real history, and truly enjoy the show for many reasons. 
But damn, now that I know this history and how the show definitely portrays it as a romantic underdog story, I'm a bit conflicted now. I'm very invested and honestly I'll still probably watch. But ugh, it's gonna be a little more difficult. Though luckily in the show the main character is against owning slaves and feeds to a more modern audience. But still, I was sad to think I couldn't watch a show I genuinely enjoy for the characters and story quite the same way again, and that it actually has a bit of a mixed message, even if it is technically fiction. Like how much I cried when in the most recent episodes he put his kilt back on after several seasons where he couldn't wear it for the story, then he brought everyone together by burning the cross. In the context of the show, it's a high emotion positive moment, this hard lefty cried her eyes out. But through history that moment isn't quite the same based on that episode. Hi, this is Kara. This is my first email. It's short and nothing important to say. Just wanted to cry cause I love the show Outlander. If you don't know it, basically it's a fictional time travel story based on some books, where a 1920s woman is accidentally sent back in time to the exact moment in time this episode talks about, where she falls in love with a Jacobite soldier. The show is a mix of sci-fi and some history. They show that war, then them eventually coming to America before the government was established. I admit I definitely didn't know the real history, and truly enjoy the show for many reasons. But damn, now that I know this history and how the show definitely portrays it as a romantic underdog story, I'm a bit conflicted now. I'm very invested and honestly I'll still probably watch. But ugh, it's gonna be a little more difficult. Though luckily in the show the main character is against owning slaves, and feeds to a more modern audience. But still. I was sad to think I couldn't watch a show I genuinely enjoy for the characters and story quite the same way again, and that it actually has a bit of a mixed message, even if it is technically fiction. Like how much I cried when in the most recent episodes he put his kilt back on after several seasons where he couldn't wear it for the story, then he brought everyone together by burning the cross. In the context of the show, it's a high emotion positive moment, this hard lefty cried her eyes out. But through history that moment isn't quite the same based on that episode. So what I would say first to Kara and all the other Outlander fans out there, speaking of which, I had heard of Outlander before, but I hadn't watched it. So it didn't even cross my mind to reference it in that episode. But what I would say to all of you is chill out and enjoy your show. There, There's nothing to feel guilty about or bad about because the Lost Cause narratives of Scotland and the Confederate South are similar and run along similar tracks doesn't mean they come from similarly toxic origins. Now, it's not like everything about the Scotland story is pure as the driven snow, but it's not nearly as noxious as what we know the lost cause of the South is based on. You know, we're talking about kilts and haggis and Catholicism versus slavery. There's a big gap there, and that's the key difference. The reason why the lost cause of the Confederate South is terrible and should be banished from everyone's minds is because it is based on slavery and no one should build a fantasy world to defend that. The fantasy world that the Jacobite story is defending is, I mean, it's the whole fantasy world of the divine right of kings and all of that. And so that's fantasy on top of fantasy. But 
having your king be in place rather than another king be in place or your religion be in charge versus another slightly different religion be in charge is not inherently oppressive. And for more clarification on this, we'll hear from our second voicemail of the day coming from a real-life Scott living presumably undercover in secret behind enemy lines in London. But because it's a voicemail, and unfortunately I don't have a, a Scottish accent voice, instead you get to enjoy Mark with, uh, he's the first person to choose the in-a-world movie announcer voice, presumably to help conceal his identity even further. Hi Jay, this is Mark from London. From Scotland originally, I always enjoy your show, but I found your recent episode on lost causes particularly interesting. I had considered the parallels between the romanticization of the Jacobite uprising in Scotland and the cause of the Confederacy in the southern states of the USA, but I had no idea that there was actually a direct link between the two phenomena, although not as foul a cause as that of the Confederacy. The restoration of the Stuarts was an attempt to bring back Catholic absolutism in place of the constitutional monarchy, which had been established in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution. The defeat of the Jacobites at Culloden was the final nail in the coffin for this reactionary movement, and should really be celebrated on that basis, rather than being romanticized by tartan shortbread tins emblazoned with pictures of Bonnie Prince Charlie. A recent development has been the adoption by the Scottish independence movement of the slogan, We are the 45 following their defeat in the 2014 referendum. The vote was 45% yes, 55% no. I just wanted to pick up on one detail of the show which was not quite correct. The opening sequence referred to the repression of the Scots' language and then played a clip of Harry Potter being read in Scots. The language of the Scottish Highlanders was Gaelic. Similar to Irish Gaelic, it was this language which was repressed following the defeat of the Jacobites as part of the general repression of the Highlanders for having supported the Stuart Restoration. The Scots language, or dialect depending on your view, is a variant of English and is the language of Lowland Scots. E.G. Robert Burns, keep up the great work. So there you go. You, he you heard it from Mark. If you want to watch Outlander and still feel good about it, even knowing the ultimate historical connections between the Jacobite Rebellion and the lost cause of the Confederacy, I think you should go right ahead, because, you know, that, that connection looks a lot worse for the Confederacy than it does for the Jacobites. However, what you may want to feel bad about is rooting for the side that would have wanted to re-implement authoritarian Catholicism which And just, I don't know, think how that would have played out. They would have turned England back into a Catholic nation along with the colonies. And then here in the U.S., there would be so many more statues of the Virgin Mary. I mean, like so many more. And you want that on your conscience? Uh, I don't know. Quick last note on, on the Jacobites, though. My absolute favorite little tidbit is whatever happened to Bonnie Prince Charlie? You hear about him waging this rebellion and losing and going away. And then what happened? Well, this is my favorite little bit. So for the uninitiated, you just need to know that Bonnie means 
beautiful or good looking. So like you might hear reference to a bonnie lass or the bonnie, bonnie banks of Loch Lomond or Bonnie Prince Charlie, obviously. And so uh, one sign in a museum in Scotland says, after Culloden, when Bonnie Prince Charlie was defeated, Charles, unable to raise support for another uprising, eventually died, alcoholic, disillusioned, and no longer Bonnie. Now, the last thing today, as I promised at the top, I'll give you a little bit more of an update on our impromptu emergency fundraiser that we have going on right now. I announced a couple episodes back that we lost our Amazon affiliate program funds, which is the equivalent or was the equivalent of about 400 members. And I hoped beyond hope that we could maybe recoup that uh, somehow. And so the update is that with new signups and gift memberships and existing members increasing their monthly or yearly donation, I've done the math, it's a little complicated, but I think we've recouped about 250 members worth, which is amazing. I don't think we've ever had that kind of boost in funding from memberships and donations all at once, ever. So that is, on one hand, amazing and excellent, and on the other, not quite there yet. So we just have to keep talking about this. But I mean, remember, we are not just trying to squeeze more and more money out of the existing listeners. We are trying to expand our listenership as wide as possible. So just to reiterate, if you can sign up for a membership or want to give a membership away as a gift, then that is fantastic. You you know how much progress we've made. We just need to make a little bit more. Given the size of our audience, 150 people is simultaneously not that much, but also it's the holiday season and we're in the middle of a pandemic and there are a lot of reasons why people don't want to part with their money. And I would just say that this show at the level that it is running with the production value and time that is put into it has a lot of expenses. It's not just my life (laughs) giving me enough money to survive. We have researchers to pay. We have Amanda who does everything behind the scenes. There's software and services and hosting and just all the things like Amanda made a list the other day that I don't have in front of me, but it's like shockingly long, the number of things that we just have to pay for to help make the show run. And so we just have to keep raising money because going backwards isn't that much of an option. It's hard to get to the level we are and then decide, well, let's just do it cheaper. Let's just do less research. Let's just not have researchers or let's just not do this or that. Like to go backwards is really difficult. And frankly, I don't think anyone wants that. I I, I obviously don't. So we just have to uh, keep looking for ways to expand the audience. I'm excited about the Referomatic, and I think we have great rewards for you if you take the time to sign up, which is obviously free. You just put in your name and email address, and when you refer people to the show using your link, which creates a really easy, seamless way for people to sign up, so it's something that you can 
put on social media. You can email to people, send a text message to people. It makes it really like one tap easy for people to sign up, which is great. That <laughs> I feel like that's one of the sticking points with podcasts. A lot of the time is not quite sure how to do it, or even if you know how to do it, there's a little bit of a hassle. Sending a referral link makes it as easy as anyone can make it to sign up for a podcast. So if you do that, then we have great rewards for you, including uh, obviously me thanking you on the show. And look, honestly, amazing smartphone wallpaper images that Amanda and I created that we're super proud of and really want for people to be able to see and enjoy. So you just have to refer five people to the show and that's the first reward you get. So check that out. The links to everything we want you to do are in the show notes and we appreciate you doing whatever you can do to help us get through this unexpectedly tight financial period that we're going through right now. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. Thanks to everyone who helps make the show possible, Dion and Aaron and Amanda and the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken. We could not do what we are doing without the help of all these people. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, more true now than ever, from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.